0: Starting a new series this morning that we're just calling The Good Life, and we're going to walk through from now to Easter, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, verses 3 uh, through 12. So I'm actually going to read this before we dive in, and we might read the whole thing every time. It's actually, very, if we're doing one a week, so if you can memorize one verse a week, then over the next uh, eight to ten weeks, you can memorize this whole section of Scripture. It's really not that difficult. I, I bet you could do it. I challenge you, encourage you, invite you to commit this to memory as we preach through it and walk through it as a church family. So if you have God's word open, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 3. We'll actually back up and start in verse 1 so we can have a little context. When he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came, came to him. Then he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice, because your reward is great in heaven, for that's how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father, we open your word expecting to hear from you this morning. We open your word and ask for your help to understand it in our minds. I mean, give us minds that can grasp this. But God, I pray that it would go down into our hearts this morning. Challenge us in the way we've been living and turn us back to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I think there's one question that's always burning in all of our hearts What is the good life? I mean, what's the life that's really good? Now, not just like morally good, but what's the good life that I'm going after? And I'm not typically the guy that quotes the dictionary definition, but I thought when I Googled good life, just to see what comes up, are there articles, have people been writing about this? Are there songs about the good life? Uh, It was hilarious that there was actually a dictionary definition of good life. Here are the two definitions that Webster gives. One, this this is the first one. The kind of life that people with a lot of money are able to have. Well, let's just get right down to it. And then here's number two. As if number two is not included in number one. The second definition is a happy and enjoyable life. Isn't that interesting? The first one is the kind of life that people with a lot of money are having. If you don't have that kind of good life, well, maybe you can have a happy and enjoyable life like definition number two. See, don't we make all of our decisions? We go to college. We get jobs, we enter into relationships, we move cities, we buy houses, we get things for our houses and cars, and we're doing it all because we're trying to get on a certain kind of path that we think is going to satisfy us, make us happy, and give us the good life. Or maybe uh, you've heard the cultural narrative today that the good life is actually already inside you. You just need to express it. The good life is found by being true to yourself, by expressing your emotions and your feelings and your desires and not letting anyone or anything stand in the way of that. But if we're all honest, no matter which route you take, let me go get stuff or let me express what's inside of me, do either of those really bring you the good life or are we all just found disappointed? In the Beatitudes, Jesus, though, is offering us a better way. Jesus is inviting us to consider what the good life really is. And so as we walk through the Beatitudes, here's kind of the main thing I want us to walk away with this morning and over the next couple months. The Beatitudes are Jesus' invitation to the good life, both now and forever. They're Jesus' invitation to the good life, both now and forever. So first point this morning, the vision of the good life. This is just an introductory message so we're not going to be in verse three blessed with the porn spirit we're going to be kind of overviewing all of them so first this morning the vision of the good life what even is a beatitude i remember growing up hearing the word beatitude and being so confused i have the word be in my encyclopedia i have the word attitude in my encyclopedia put them together and i'm like i've never heard that but it feels like something i should have heard of so i was always confused hearing that word But what is the Beatitude? Well, it helps first to have some context historically and culturally. See, in the ancient world, philosophers would try to answer the question of human happiness and flourishing. They would try to answer that question, and so actually, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is giving his answer to the question of human happiness and flourishing. And these Beatitudes are actually ancient wisdom literature. Okay, so when we read this, we got to think wisdom literature. And you say, how do you know that? Why do you think that? Well, because in ancient wisdom literature, there was a kind of writing that was called a makarism. And a makarism, I mean, it's a genre. It's not just found in scripture. It's found all over ancient writings. It's a makarism. And where do we get the word makarism from is the Greek word makarios, which is the word that starts every beatitude. Blessed, 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 blessed. That word blessed is the word Makarios, and we translate it as blessed. As I'm about to show you, that may or may not be extremely helpful because when we think of the word blessed, we typically think of maybe Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every heavenly blessing. When we think of blessed, we think God speaking favor to us, God uh, saying a good thing about us and that thing actually being true. And there is a wonderful word in the New Testament for that, eulogetos. It's where we get our word eulogy, to speak a good word of. And that's always translated as blessed. But then you have a whole different Greek word, and I'm doing my best impersonation of someone who knows Greek this morning. I've read a lot of people who know Greek. But there's another word that the New Testament uses that's translated as blessed, and it's, I almost said translated as breast. And then I just told you I almost said that. <laughs> it's translated as blessed and it's makarios. So we have these two words and we typically think of blessed as one thing and when we read the word blessed we think of one thing but really they're two words and you say, well wait, why are they two words? Does it matter? And it absolutely matters because when ancient people would have said the word makarios, they would have been talking about a makarism which gives us a whole different sense of the meaning of blessed. Jesus is not saying, If you can muster up enough strength to be poor in spirit, God's going to give you a blessing. That's not what he's saying. When he uses the word makarios, he's saying, this is the state or condition of one who is blessed. This is blessedness. Jesus is more describing the blessed life than he is saying God is going to pour out blessing on this person. Now, definitely God is pouring out blessing on these people or else they wouldn't be able to live in this way. But by using this word blessed, by using this word makarios, By using this ancient wisdom literature called Macarism, Jesus is describing somebody who is blessed, happy, or truly flourishing. He's talking about the condition of someone who is blessed. So if the first word we normally use for blessed is more of the divine perspective of God pouring down blessing. Maybe makarios and makarism gives us the human perspective of looking at someone and saying, that person is a blessed person. So Jesus is actually giving us a vision of the good life, the blessed life, the happy life. Listen to Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a great preacher in the 1900s in London, and he describes the Beatitudes like this. Our Lord says that this is the only kind of person who is truly blessed that is happy. Someone has suggested that it might be put like this. This is the sort of man who is to be congratulated. This is the sort of man who is to be envied, for he alone is truly happy. R.T. France wrote one of the greatest commentaries on the book of Matthew, and he says it like this, Beatitudes are the description and the commendation of the good life. Jesus is saying that these kinds of people are truly happy. So maybe a better definition, just because we get the word blessed kind of convoluted, some people have said maybe the word happy is better. Now happy in our culture is so loaded down with feelings. I feel happy, I don't feel, I feel sad, but Jesus is offering us a better vision of what true happiness is. Another commentator, Jonathan Pennington, said maybe flourishing is a better word than blessed right here. But as we read the Beatitudes, we need to understand that Jesus is giving us a vision. And this is why I use good life, because happy is loaded with feelings and flourishing may not always land with us. We don't use that word often. Jesus is giving us his vision for the good life. That's what he's doing in the Beatitudes, it's the vision for the good life. But our second point this morning is the everyday invitation of the good life. Part of the reason we say this is a vision of the good life is because if you read through this, there's actually not any commands. There's literally no imperatives of Jesus saying, do this. The whole thing is descriptive. So he's actually not sitting there telling his disciples, you better be poor in spirit. You better do this. Actually, he's casting a vision, and he's describing a certain kind of person. But in this vision, there's an invitation baked in. And he doesn't list off specific actions as part of his invitation. He doesn't give commands or give instructions because he's not primarily inviting you to do things. He's inviting you to become a certain kind of person. See, the invitation of the Beatitudes is not to take up a to-do list. The invitation of the Beatitudes is to let Jesus Christ form you into a different kind of person who lives like this. And that's actually in line with what the whole Bible is. The Bible was never intended to give us a flat list of actions and behaviors to adopt. As if we could always know when to do exactly the right things at every single moment of our life, and all we need is a list of rules to do that. Scripture is actually intended to turn us into a certain kind of person Maybe you hear us use the language of being is more important than doing. Because if you are a certain kind of person, your doing is going to take care of itself. So scripture is intended to turn us into a certain kind of person who lives out a certain way of life and then is able to apply that way of life to many different circumstances. So Jesus in the Beatitudes is inviting you, as we read this, he's inviting you to become this kind of person Because he's saying this is the good life. See, he's not inviting you to do poor in spirit. He's not telling you like, hey, sometimes you need to do poor in spirit and not others. He's not telling you to do merciful things sometimes. He's telling, he's inviting you to be a merciful person. Why? Because that is the truly blessed and happy person. He's inviting you into a whole way of life and a way of being in the world. And that way of life is the good life. So, some application so far. Because of the invitation to become a certain kind of person, we ought to read these beatitudes with a mirror, asking ourselves, am I this kind of person? Am I the kind of person that is poor in spirit? Am I the kind of person... That's merciful. Am I the kind of person who's a mourner? Am I becoming and growing into this kind of person? Am I living the truly happy and flourishing way that Jesus describes? Am I willing for Jesus to describe the good life for me? Or as I read these Beatitudes, do I think it's all baloney and there's no way this is the good life? And I actually think over the next couple months, there will be moments that we probably think that because some of these sound crazy. They do. They sound insane. Like there's no way the good life is being poured in spirit. There's no way the good life is being persecuted. There's no way the good life can be described as those who mourn. But are we willing as we read the Beatitudes for Jesus to tell us what the good life is? to tell us what the truly blessed life is, or are we gonna challenge him and say, no, Jesus, you've got this all wrong. But as we read the Beatitudes, are we willing to look at ourselves and say, you know what, Jesus, I I wanna confess, You're, you're the Lord, you're the king of my life, and you define the good life for me. So now it's for me, as I read the Beatitudes, to read it with a mirror to my own heart and ask, am I becoming like this? Is this the kind of person that I'm growing into? And I just mentioned how these sound crazy. And that leads us to the third point this morning, which is the eternal hope of the good life. We've got to hold these in tension, the everyday invitation and the eternal hope. And I'll talk about why here in just a second. But these, these Beatitudes, they do sound a little wild. Hey, if you're poor in spirit, you're the ones who are truly blessed. Um, that's actually not at all what we think, is it? I mean, what would some Beatitudes sound like if we rewrote them today? Blessed are the busy, blessed are the productive, for they will always get their to-do list done. Blessed are the rich, for they'll never have to depend on someone else again. Or in the words of American theologian Kendrick Lamar, (laughs) you can tell our congregation is in East Cobb. It was like, who's Kendrick Lamar? He's a rapper. He said, blessed are the liars, for the truth can be awkward. I mean, how would we redefine the Beatitudes today from our perspective? I, I would, probably wouldn't rewrite these. So why can these be described as the good life? Well, it's because they're not just fulfilled in this life. Part of the vision that Jesus is casting is that these cannot be totally fulfilled until Jesus comes again. The only reason that the poor in spirit are blessed is because they'll get the kingdom of heaven. Wait, right now? You're telling me the persecuted Christians in closed countries right now have the full kingdom? Well, yes, they do, but guess what? They're not going to experience it in full until Jesus comes back. So you're telling me the mourners are the ones who are truly blessed right now? Well, yeah, yeah, but they don't fully see it yet because their comfort's going to come in full and it's never going to end when Jesus comes back. These beatitudes show the end time reversals that will take place when God's kingdom comes fully and finally in Jesus. One of the texts in the Old Testament that sort of inspired some of these Beatitudes is Isaiah 61, verses one to three. And this was written long before Jesus, but it's almost written from the perspective of this is what God's anointed Savior is gonna say. The spirit of the Lord God is on me because the Lord has anointed me to bring, notice all the language that you find in the Beatitudes in this text, good news to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of our God's vengeance, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, festive oil instead of mourning, and splendid clothes instead of despair, and they will be called righteous trees planted by the Lord to glorify them. Do you hear the reversal that's gonna come when God's anointed Savior and Messiah arrives? He's going to take the poor and those who mourn and those who are persecuted, and he's going to comfort them and actually put robes on them. Or Mary's song in Luke chapter 1, the Magnificat in Luke 1:46 to 55. She talks about magnifying the Lord because the Lord has looked on with favor on the humble condition of his servant. She says his mercy is from generation to generation on those who fear him. He's done a mighty deed with his arm. He has scattered the proud because of the thoughts of their hearts. Do you see the reversal? The proud, the lifted up? No, he actually casts them down and scatters them. He satisfies the hungry with good things, but he sends the rich away empty. Only in the end, in eternity, with the return of Christ, will all of these things be fully and finally true. Only on that day will the mourners find eternal comfort. The meek truly inherit the earth. God's righteousness fill the earth unimpeded by sin and evil. Only on that day will the merciful find everlasting mercy. Only on that day will the pure in heart see Christ in the flesh. Only on that day the peacemakers will fully come into their adoption as sons and daughters of God. Only on that day will the poor and the persecuted inherit fully and finally the kingdom of God. So if we're gonna apply this, the everyday invitation and the eternal hope, as we read the Beatitudes, we can't go fully to one or the other. There have been people throughout church history that have said, hey, these Beatitudes are an impossible ideal. You can never live them in this life. It's something that's only gonna come in that day. Or people have said, you know what? This is totally applied now. That's not about that day when Jesus comes back. This is something to be lived now. You can have all of these blessings today. But I hope the line we walk, church family, as we read and study the Beatitudes, is to hold those two things in tension. And I believe that is the key to reading the whole scripture. See, we're walking examples of this tension, if you know Christ. Because if you know Christ, you are already a new creation. You are already a new creation. So on the one hand, that's every day. That is who you are, but you still live with an eternal hope that God's gonna finish, Philippians one, the good thing that he started in you. So as we read the Beatitudes, we've gotta hold the tension between the everyday invitation of becoming this kind of person, but also the eternal hope that one day Jesus really will reverse everything that we think is true and that these really will experience eternal blessing with God, eternal happiness with God. the last point. I struggled with what to call the last point. Either the possibility of the good life or the one who lived the good life. Because if you're reading this, if you're buying into this, if you're reading the Beatitudes, you might be asking, how in the world do I become that kind of person? Like, what hope do we have? You may look at yourself in light of this list and you may go, I know how I am. I know how I am with New Year's resolutions. I know how I am with things that I want to grow into or I want to become or I want to add to my life. Like I know the resources in me and you may be discouraged because you think you don't have any hope at living this good life. Take a deep breath. Let me encourage you with some good news. God never operates under the premise that you can do anything on your own. There is not a command in scripture that God gives that he then steps back and crosses his arms and says, go. There is not an invitation in God's word that he sets before you that he expects that you can do on your own. There's nothing. So even in this good life, he's not saying, go, I told you what to do. I told you the good life. Why didn't you do it? So if you're looking at this and you're discouraged and thinking, I can't, none of us can. You say, then how? Well, you'll have to first spare me an illustration from a book that Carrie and I just started reading. We're way behind. I wasn't able to read this as a kid, but we just started the first Harry Potter book. And in the opening chapters, it's so suspenseful because you know who Harry is, but Harry doesn't know who Harry is. He doesn't have any friends and he's 11 years old and he's living in a cupboard under the stairs and you think what a sad life and if he only knew who he was. But we learned how he even lived and how his parents died and we learned that he was killed by him who shall not be named. And we learned why he struck such fear in everyone because it says that anyone that Voldemort wanted to kill was dead. No one had ever been able to live and withstand Voldemort. And when Voldemort came to Harry's parents and killed them, and then he turned and tried to kill Harry as well, for some reason, Harry lived. For some reason, he lived. And so, all around the country, it says people raised their glasses to Harry Potter, the boy who lived. You say, why did they raise their glasses? Why were they cheering? Why did that spark hope in them? Because the evil that no one could stand up to, the evil that they thought was insurmountable, the evil that they thought would eventually overtake everyone, including them, all of a sudden there's a glimmer of hope that, wait, that evil may not be the strongest force here. If he's the boy who lived, maybe I can be the man who lived, the woman who lived. Maybe I can live beyond this evil too. So they raised their glass and said, to the boy who lived... to the boy that evil didn't overtake. Well, we can cheer this morning to the boy who lived the good life for us. Because if you read these Beatitudes, And you look inward and you say, I have no chance. Sin is too strong. No one has ever been able to stand up to sin and live a good life before God. No one has ever been able to do that. We are cowering in a much greater fear of a much greater evil than Voldemort. No, this is real. This is sin and evil from God. And we say, there is no chance. But then we hear stories and rumors of this man from Nazareth, Jesus And we realize that the one who taught these beatitudes came to live what he was teaching. Because though he was rich for your sake, he became poor. We learned that he mourned many things in this life, like the death of his friend Lazarus and the state of his beloved people, Jerusalem. We learned from Matthew 11 that he was meek and gentle and lowly. He was so hungry for righteousness to be brought to the earth and he actually brought it himself. He was merciful to sinners, tax collectors, Samaritans who were typically at odds with his people. He was merciful even to the Pharisees as we see his interaction with Nicodemus having conversations and inviting Nicodemus to consider the new birth that he was there to bring. Jesus was perfectly pure in heart and had a perfect devotion to God Never broke perfect fellowship with God. He was a constant peacemaker, even in fatal situations. He didn't allow Peter to use force in the Garden of Gethsemane. He didn't fight his trial, his torture, or his crucifixion. And he was persecuted to the point of death because of his righteous devotion to bring God's kingdom. So, for you to live the good life, my friends, it is possible, but not because of you. Because of the boy who lived. Because of the boy who was born in Bethlehem, lived a perfect life, died the death we should have died, only so that he could be resurrected again and put his resurrection life in you. So can you live this good life? Yes, you can. If Jesus lives it in you and through you. That's our only hope to do it. It's only possible if he gives us his very life so that from the inside out, we're propelled to live like this. We can only live this good life if we're in the kingdom of God. That's why textually you see Jesus beginning his ministry saying, repent, the kingdom's at hand. And then this is kind of the first thing that happens because the context of living this out is in the kingdom. So only if we're in the kingdom of God and only if we have the very life of God within us so that it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So as we end this introduction to the Beatitudes, I think we're faced with whether or not we're gonna submit to Jesus. Are we gonna submit to the things he taught, and are we gonna submit to his power to actually live these things out? Or are we going to go on defining these things on our own? Or are you going to go on defining the good life on your own? You can spend a lifetime doing it. It's been a lifetime of disappointment. Or we can bend our ear to Jesus. We can bow our knee to him. And we can let him redefine the good life for us and embrace these upside down ways of living so that we really can find not a fleeting emotional happiness that this world knows, but an eternal happiness that only comes from Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, we are thankful for the Beatitudes. We're thankful for the way that they challenge us. We're thankful for the brilliance of Jesus in teaching these things. Jesus, we're thankful that you lived these and that then you knew we would need your power to live them out. So I pray this morning that you'd capture our hearts with this vision of the good life. Show us as we read our own hearts in ways that we're not like this. And we ask that your Holy Spirit in us would make us more like this kind of person. And I pray that the way we live out the good life would be attractive for people who aren't in the church and don't know Jesus. That they would see the true lasting happiness we have that's not based on circumstances. And they would say, I want that too. I'm tired of a life that's based on what I earn and the circumstances that I'm going through. And we'd get to introduce them to you, Christ. Work this text and these truths down into our soul so that we don't just have a to-do list of things to work on, but we actually are becoming a certain kind of person that lives these things out, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.